Welcome to the third in our series of Urban Next Transport Next conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas. So transport for London, transport for Greater Manchester, transport for West Midlands, and for all the other major metro areas serving over 20 million people. So as well as being a body that thinks ahead about what's next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and we can and do learn collectively from these events. I'm really pleased that so many people signed up to take part in this event, and I'm really looking forward to this one. It's all about that marvel of ambitious modernity, that pinnacle of 1970s aspirations for integrated public transport, and the bone structure of Tyne and Weir, the Tyne and Weir Metro. And we couldn't have a better lineup for you to uh, talk about it, its past and its future. We have our chair, who is Mike Parker, who was in charge of the Tyne and Weir Metro for 12 years and the man who is in charge of it now, Tobin Hughes, who is overseeing its total overhaul, including a brand new train fleet, as well as Hugh Lewis, Customer Service Director of Nexus, a champion of the Metro and an authority on the history of the system. You can also be part of this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting questions, keep them short and sharp via the Zoom questions chat, and you can always vote for the question you'd most like asked. Uh, we'll be picking those up in the final section of the conversation. And you can also use the comments channel of a Zoom call. And of course, you can also use Twitter with the hashtag UTGNext. So that's the hashtag UTGNext. So with that, Mike, over to you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, delighted to be here and delighted to have some role in the commemoration of 40 years of the Metro, even though I suppose it's 41. 41 now. Uh, just a little bit more uh, about people who are appearing today, the three of us. My, uh, I was there from 1994 to 2006. Uh, my career was totally in public transport, 18 years with London Transport, then to Centro in the West Midlands, the West Midlands Passenger Transport Executive, uh, and then came up here. And in terms of the Metro, uh, the big thing when I was there was the Sunderland extension, the uh, extending the metro to Sunderland and South Hilton. Uh, Tobin, you didn't take over. You took over eight years, I think, after after I left. But you arrived at Nexus immediately after I left, I think. I did, Mike, although I don't think it was uh, uh, um, deliberate that I waited until you'd gone. So uh, I worked for uh, about 12 years for a major international airline. Uh, based in London, in fact, uh, which I thought it couldn't get any more fascinating than that until I came in 2007 and joined Nexus. Um, I joined as the strategy director, um, but my goodness, how public transport transforms people's lives and is so crucial to the way that everything functions. So I've never, ever had a dull hour, let alone a dull day since that time. I became director general in 2016 and I've, uh, I continue in that role today. Great. And, and Hugh, I mean, Hugh, I'm very proud to say I recruited as head of head of media. I don't know when it was, Hugh. It must have been about 2004 or something like that. Uh, and uh, before that, 
tell us about it. Your time, you used to interview me uh, as, a, as a journalist for the journal about, about uh, transport issues, but tell us a little bit more, Hugh. That's right. I do feel strangely entwined uh, with you, Mike. I, I started life as a, as a reporter, as a journalist on the regional newspapers and worked on the big regional newspapers here in the northeast of England. And then, um, of course, Mike, you introduced, uh, you were one of the first people to introduce metro newspapers to, um, to the metro system, one of the first in the world. Um, I got a job editing the metro newspaper and that took me all over the world. Um, launching new metro newspapers as far afield as Boston, Toronto, Hong Kong, Paris. Um, and then having, 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 uh, looking, for, looking for a job closer to home, I found myself actually working for Nexus and, and having you as a boss instead of interviewing you and went from head of communications up to uh, become customer services director now for a much wider remit, but still the same passion for public transport. Fantastic, Hugh. Well, what, what we're going to do is uh, we're sort of dividing the, the discussion into three bits, obviously being uh, uh, talking about 40, 41 years of the Metro. We're going to talk quite a lot about the history uh, of the Metro. And we can't have a session like this without looking into the future, next 10 years, next 20 years, what, what is actually going to happen to the Metro. But first, particularly because of the uh, current real serious pressure of the pandemic. Uh, let's talk about the current. What is the situation, Tobin, on the Metro at the moment? Well, yeah, 2020, of course, was meant to be, or it was the 40th anniversary of the Metro. And it was meant to be a year full of celebration, lots of events where we would engage with the people who'd worked on the system and traveled on it. Um, of course, uh, the world was very different to the one we expected. Uh, and COVID, of course, has touched everybody's lives whoever you are in the country and whatever you do. Um, it touched the Tyne and Weir Metro in a number of profound ways. And I think I can start by saying I've never been prouder to be associated with the Tyne and Weir Metro than I am today. Um, yes, the brand, yes, the uh, uh, huge value to the local economy, but actually it's the people. Um, the people, of course, make the system. Uh, it might be cliched, but it's totally true. Um, throughout the first lockdown and all of the periods that we've been through since, our staff have been out there running the system in very difficult conditions. They've adapted, um, they've made sure that people can get around um, our area in, uh, in a very difficult time. So if we look at a normal week pre-COVID, we'd expect to be carrying just over 100,000 people each weekday. Um, during the lockdown, the first lockdown, we were carrying about 5,000 people, which shows you the effect of a stay-at-home message from the government. Uh, that's since grown back in this period of lockdown to a bit more akin to fifteen to 20,000 people each weekday. Um, and this is where I think our story begins and it probably ends. That's how important the Tyne and Weir Metro is to the Tyne and Weir area. Those fifteen to 20,000 people aren't travelling for the fun of it. Uh, there's a government instruction to stay at home unless you have to. Those people don't want to be on public transport, quite frankly, at the moment, unless they have to. They all rely on the metro to get around. And I remember um, early on in the first lockdown, I was on a metro station and asked a lady who was looking a bit confused um, whether she needed any help. Um, and she was using the metro that day, probably for the first time in a while, actually. Uh, because she just got a job working uh, as a security guard in the local supermarket and she just leaped on the metro to 
where Google Maps told her the nearest metro station was. Um, and that was how she was going to get to work through lockdown because she didn't own a car. Um, now, whether you're uh, somebody who uh, works keeping hospitals clean, uh, whether you work in a vaccination centre, um, whether you work in the department for social security, where a lot of people uh, uh, are helping others, they all rely on the metro to get around. So that has been fantastic. But I should say, Mike, there's a there's a worrying side to all of this. I've never been more proud, but I've also never been more concerned than right now. And that's because uh, all of those 100,000 people would have um, been travelling and paying a fare, or at least a good deal of them would. Um, where we are now is with a huge hole in our commercial income. Uh, and we're relying on a very welcome government emergency COVID support grant to keep on operating while that income is missing. Um, the government, of course, has got many demands on very stretched finances. So we're in continual discussion with the government about that continuing. Uh, the future right now is quite uncertain for public transport um, as the economy starts to open again following the government's recently announced roadmap we will see people coming back as shops and restaurants and bars reopen as children go back to school but we don't think that it's uh, going to recover back to where it was for quite a long time so um, huge value to the region and that's been proven by our staff during covid but a good deal of uncertainty as well you're going to have to sell public transport travel again which was a huge thing you know in the 60s 70s 80s what how are you going to do that how are you going to make public transport attractive to those who are possibly very fearful about traveling well i think it's um it's a it's a painful irony that just before the first lockdown came in we were probably as a public transport network more attractive and selling our message better than ever before uh, the climate change agenda um air pollution in town centres um, and people just not seeing motoring as an attractive thing to quite the same degree. Uh, so those messages are still there. Those drivers are still there. People say they want to be part of a green recovery. Uh, they want climate change to feature more heavily. That's part of the message we'll be promoting. Uh, but I think it's important now to ask Hugh to tell us a little bit about what we've been doing to make the system attractive and secure. Well, thanks. I mean, as Tobin says, people need Metro. Uh, but people are anxious about using it. We need our customers to be comfortable right now. And we need our, our people, our employees to be comfortable because they're, they're providing this essential service. Um, it's been, we've had to move fast with COVID secure measures. It started with cleaning, um, it, it, antiviral products that we'd never heard of were introduced with and tested and introduced within weeks. Um, we were very fast on the subject of face coverings. I think even before the government um, we, was, was, was saying face coverings were important, the transport industry and certainly Metro, we were making that argument. And, and we had a concerted campaign with customers not, not to order them to wear um, face coverings, but to encourage them and actually to celebrate and thank them when they did. And that's all part of us being part of everyday life, of being part of the community that we serve. So we're not policing, we're working together. And those COVID secure measures carry on. And of course, we're, we're tapped into what's going on right across the world in this pandemic. So new measures, I mean, just this week, we, we have the, the line through the city centre closed and we're putting in uh, UV filters on all our escalators in the city centre stations. And those measures will keep coming. As we, as we move out of this, 
customers will want to know what's new and what more we have to offer. Um, we've updated our ticketing. Uh, we're taking our um, existing smart products, multimodal, so you can use them not just on Metro, but on bus, in, um, increasing the uh, potential to do cashless ticketing. During this pandemic, we introduced a, a smart card for under 16s, meaning the whole age range now uses smart on the Metro system. Um, uh, pay by phone at car parks, so that you don't have to use the ticket machines there. And looking ahead, now there is a roadmap to come out of this pandemic. What are the extra offers we can make? How are we gonna get people back to the towns and cities we serve best? And um, providing uh, Boris is right about this roadmap, in the summer, we will be introducing Kids Go Free right across, public, uh, right across Metro, right through the week. So if you're a fair paying adult, your children under 11 travel free with you. We need that kind of um, blue sky thinking, bold decisions if we're going to win back passengers. Excellent. And are we still, uh, Tobin, sort of continuing with maintenance and expansion? How's our capital program doing? Absolutely. And you know, it's great from, to hear from Hugh about some of the innovations that we've continued to make because the Metro has always innovated. And I'm sure we'll touch on that later. But we've also continued to build throughout the history of the system and during the pandemic as well. So uh, Hugh mentioned uh, the line is currently closed as we're renewing about nine kilometres of overhead line as part of our ongoing huge uh, programme of uh, renewal of the system. Uh, but we've also been carrying out a certain number of activities related to the introduction of the new train fleet. Uh, we've opened a new temporary depot um, in a place called Howden, and that allows our train fleet to be stabled there overnight, freeing up the main depot in Gosforth for the demolition programme, which has literally just begun uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so that it can be demolished and rebuilt in time to house the new fleet of trains. Um, again, he will say a bit more about that later, but the new fleet of trains is coming, it is nearly with us, and very exciting times as we prepare for that. So there's a lot to look forward to um, in the medium to long term, for sure. Um, the new fleet of trains itself will increase the capacity of the system to carry more passengers at peak times. Uh, and we're also working on a new project uh, which will um, increase uh, or take out some of the single track areas on the network, allow us to operate a more frequent and a more reliable service. So there's been lots of stuff going on um, whilst uh, many of us actually have been stuck at home uh, on Teams or on Zoom. Uh, a lot of our staff have been out there carrying out construction and renewal activity. Very good. And I suppose one of the little bits of positivity about uh, the pandemic is that you can get on with these very, very disruptive capital schemes because actually far less people are being, uh, are being affected. Um, so uh, can we perhaps go into a bit of history uh, as we said that we would do? Um, and um, perhaps Hugh, you could tell us a little bit about the history. I mean, I just, just before you do, I, I, I remember um when when uh, metro was built that the trains were there to last for 30 years uh, and when i was there pinning few engineers against the wall uh, in the depot uh, i managed they said that they could just last 40 years uh, if they did their job very well and here we here we are beyond 40 years it's pretty good achievement on behalf of the staff in the depot uh, but anyway history hugh Yes, and and I think Tobin and I often 
talk of standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to Metro, because there is such a proud heritage. And um, although we talk about Metro being 40 years old, um, I actually have the number 200 years in my head because it's approaching 200 years since the Newcastle and North Tyneside railway line, probably one of the first suburban railway lines in the world opened between Newcastle and North Shields. And it's significant to us because we still use that route today, the very same alignment um, between Gillingham Road Station east of Newcastle and uh, North Shields Station. Um, and at the time, it was all a about this brand new thing called steam, and it was a very, it was a, it was a real leap into the future. Not to, not to open a railway line to carry coal. There were plenty of those in the northeast, but one that was was for passenger service and was for suburbs. And of course, that grew through the 19th century with a loop round to towns on the coast like Whitley Bay, which perhaps owe, owe their existence and growth to suburban railways. The Northeastern Railway Company was equally bold in 1904 um, by converting to third rail electric in order to compete with the tram systems of the time. Um, passenger numbers quadrupled. Um, they couldn't build trains fast enough. Um, and that was the pride of Newcastle and, and the Tyne and Weir area for, for a very long time, but was going into decline in the, in the 50s, and, and then in particularly in the 60s and 70s, it was owned by British Rail, there was actually a point at which you couldn't even get a train to South Shields on a Sunday during the winter. Um, they just didn't offer, offer any service at all. And at that time, the subject really very relevant today was, was, was what we'd call devolution now. Local politicians looking at what they had, looking at this asset that was being run down as seemingly in terminal decline and saying, we can do better than this. And um, I think that opened the way for the plan for the people and um, the really bold decisions in the 70s that led to the, the building of Metro. And of course, uh, in the late 70s was the Barbara Castle moving towards uh, much more integrated transport, the whole idea of changing governance and the passenger transport executives and authorities uh, came into being. Uh, and that was fundamental, I think, to, uh, to the metro actually being planned. But tell us about the planning, Tobin. Well, uh, and funny you should mention that because I think that introduces one of the giants on whose shoulders we stand, uh, who was Professor Tony Ridley, of course. And, and Mike, you know him well. I think he lives fairly near to you uh, even now. Um, and Tony Ridley came up from London as a relatively young and junior um, member of London Transport. Um, and he was employed as the first Director General of the passenger transport executive, uh, it wasn't then called Nexus, um, back in the uh, in the late 60s. Um, having uh, the, the PT having be, been recently established by Barbara Castle's Transport Act of 1968, uh, and that did transform the political landscape of the big city areas. And it did give a, a degree of expectation in those city areas that the government would invest in some major transport infrastructure. Now, Tony Ridley famously said, um, you'll never get away with that, when they told him that they wanted him to uh, take and partition a piece of the national rail network, redesign the bus system and turn it into some uh, high, uh, far-fetched urban light rail system, which, by the way, was codenamed Supertram back in the day. Go figure. Um, but did it, they did. I mean, do it, they did. Uh, they 
managed to um, put in uh, a business case for that very thing, the first, something which was unimaginable in this country. There was the legacy London Underground system and Glasgow Subway, of course, uh, but they'd been built under very different times. There'd never been major investment in a city's infrastructure in this way. And let's not forget the era. It's the time when people were ripping up city centres to build more roads. They weren't investing in um, what was seen as quite unfashionable public transport systems and, and light rail was a concept that was barely heard of. Um, so Tony Ridley um, came in on the back of uh, an integrated transport plan, the so-called plan for the people that Hugh mentioned, which I think is a great name because it plan for the people says what it's about. It's not about um, trains or trams. It's about the people who lived, worked and generated the economy of the area at the time. Um, at the time, I suppose it's worth dwelling on the fact that it was a time of huge economic and social upheaval in the northeast of England. Uh, the mining industry was in decline. Shipbuilding was still present, but it was also uh, facing an uncertain future. Uh, and the country as a whole was in a very different place. Um, so the planners in this area brought forward a business case for investment against all of that complex backdrop. Uh, and it essentially said that uh, they wanted an integrated transport system that would um, revolutionise what was seen as quite a poor offering at the time, certainly from the railways. Uh, as Hughes mentioned, uh, the, the, the railway serving the area in the 60s um, and early 70s was pretty poor, starting to uh, fade away in some cases. The buses were very good, but they had a problem with uh, congestion of buses in the town and city centres. Um, I think I heard a statistic that something like there were 50 buses each hour in each direction over the Tyne Bridge in those days. And there were bus jams queuing up for all of the, the bus stations clogging up the city streets. So the integrated plan uh, looked at how it could improve um, the what we now call air quality of the urban area, uh, reduce congestion, but also connect some of those communities who were in areas where the industries were dying. And that's the plan for the people that they brought together. Now, the, the business case, uh, it's always asked, how did Tyne and Weir get this system? Uh, and why did Greater Manchester uh, or Sheffield not get the investment at the time? They had good cases, they had big populations, they had similar post-industrial issues. Uh, and Tony Ridley's tale, which I fully believe is, it's a question of timing. Um, he moved very quickly to get the business case together. He presented it to the government. He managed uh, with his political uh, masters on the uh, Passenger Transport Authority to get the politics lined up so that the government was in support. And frankly, the decisions to invest were taken before lots of other factors came in that would have threatened it. So the pushback from British Rail or British Railways to say, uh, no, you can't take our railway away. Here's our alternative plan. Push back from the bus companies who weren't too keen at the bus networks being reorganised around a new metro system. And an economic pushback, because, of course, in 1974, the IMF crisis hit uh, and the government didn't have a great deal of capital to invest after that. And luckily for us, the funding decision was taken to invest in the Tyne and Weir metro before that. And the deal was done. And it was uh, from that point. I wouldn't say immovable, 
but the decision by the government to invest was taken. So fantastic tale that we can all learn from, I think, especially in these uh, complex times. Yes, take the opportunity is very much the, the message there. And I think they were competing particularly with Manchester's idea to link Piccadilly and Victoria stations with a, some great tunnel. Um, anyway, if you like, we won. Uh, uh, so you tell us a little bit about, I mean, it was a huge construction uh, uh, problem, wasn't it? Task, big project. Tell us a bit about what the main parts of the project were. Yes, I mean, the, the ambition was, was breathtaking, not just in the vision of integrated public transport, but what had to be done to achieve it. So prior to Metro, trains radiated out of Central Station in Newcastle, which if you know the city is, is right on the south side of the city centre, perched over the Tyne and not very close to the retail core, the universities, the hospitals. The plan was to drive the, a tunnel right underneath the city and, and viaducts across the Tyne and the Usburn rivers. And a, a massive undertaking, which, you know, everybody in uh, Tyne and Weir, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't avoid it because, because streets were dug up, because roads were diverted. Um, the monument to Earl Grey, the 1830s prime minister, had to have, was, was actually right over Monument Station, our busiest station. And they, the engineers discovered it had no foundations. So um, one of the things they had to do was give Earl Grey some foundation so that so that he would still be there uh, above the station that was to, to, to kind of bear his name, so to speak. Um, and then huge, yes, huge viaducts um, across uh, across the, the Tyne and the Usburn, incredibly innovative Ovearat design on the Usburn to create this S-shaped, award-winning S-shaped viaduct out of resin. Um, it's, it's actually glued together. Um, the concrete panels on it, which is uh, not something you want to think about when you're you're perched above it, but it, it seems to work. It's 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 made forty years and has many decades more life, um, and real ambition as well about design, about the quality of the service, about the way that ticketing would would fit together with uh, with the local transport system, the buses around it. Yeah. Um... Well, uh, I, I, it didn't have a lot of easy times, though. It, was, it wasn't smooth. It didn't just come into existence, did it? There was huge problems with trade unions at the, uh, uh, in terms of who is going to represent who. Uh, Unite, or Transport General Workers, as they were then, because they were bus drivers were going to become metro drivers. They insisted on representing some of those drivers. Uh, and the other trade unions were obviously interested in protecting themselves. Uh, and there were serious disputes. Uh, I talked many, many years ago to Bill Rogers, who was the Secretary of State for Transport at the time. Uh, and he had to threaten, he threatened to close the whole thing down, to actually stop it, uh, because he needed to bang heads together so that things would progress. There was also another issue, I understand, Hugh, you probably know more about this than me, is that they built the biker bridge uh, from both ends at the same time and suddenly found that it actually didn't meet properly, <laughs> which, which was a huge scandal at the time. But uh, anyway, shall we, shall we move on then? Um, what do you think sort of makes Metro particularly unique? And what are the, the huge advantages compared to what was not just what was there in Tyne and Weir before, but other railways, other underground systems in the UK? Yeah, I'll take that one, Mike. I think the, uh, for me, 
the thing that is overriding above all else is that it's ours. It, it belongs to this region. Uh, we can talk about the technology um, and we can talk about the operation mode, but actually the Metro belongs to Tyne and Weir. It belongs to the people. The, all of the people who work on the system are local government employees. All of the assets that make up the Metro system, the infrastructure, the tracks, the embankments, some of the structures, um, the stations, they all belong to the local area. We've got the uh, land registry title deeds in, in Nexus's vaults. Um, and because of that, there's a huge sense of ownership in the local community. And the staff themselves are representatives of the local community. Uh, they don't just operate the Metro. They do things that community heroes do far and wide. They run charities. Uh, some of them stand for election and become councillors and mayors themselves. Uh, they often uh, are celebrated on, on the television. Um, and, and that, I think, is the thing that makes it us. But I will just mention the technology because I think that was the point of the question. So the, the Metro, um, it runs a Metro-style service. So during normal times, there'll be a train every three minutes through the centre of Newcastle and Gateshead, uh, which is a hugely intensive service. Um, not many other systems in the UK would replicate that type of frequency outside of the London Underground. Each train will be carrying upwards of 500 people in rush hour, um, and they'll all be pouring out um, in underground stations in the city centres of Newcastle, Gateshead and Sunderland, um, and going off to uh, do their daily work or, or study. Um, the trains themselves are effectively light rail style vehicles. Um, I think uh, manufacturers would probably call them metro style vehicles. Um, with a few distinctive features that um, are uh, quite often not replicated elsewhere. Uh, 1500 DC overhead electrification is quite a unique specification, certainly in this country. Um, and of course, they're, um, they've got unique uh, safety protection features. But those light rail vehicles, um, as Hugh mentioned earlier, run on track, a large amount of which was built originally by the Victorians 150, 200 years ago. So the infrastructure itself is not particularly light rail, other than where new construction was carried out in the 1970s, the Biker Viaduct, you've mentioned the Queen Elizabeth Bridge over the Tyne and the tunnels themselves. They, of course, are light rail underground standard tunnels and structures. So the system is a bit of a mixed bag. It's a, a hybrid system. Um, it looks and feels most like a metro, which is lucky because that's what it's called. Um, but for me, it's it's how it relates to the area around it. This is not part of the national rail network. People in the area would never think of it as something remote from them. It's something they're deeply connected to. Yes, uh, and I think they're so proud, aren't they? I think they've done various surveys. What are people in Tyne and Weir most proud of living in Tyne and Weir? And Metro always comes in the top three or four, I think, uh, when we do that. Um, so uh, I, I remember the very first time I went to, to uh, have a look at the Metro immediately after it had opened. Uh, and I think what, and I was brought up in London and was a regular user and then worked for the London Underground. The th things that really uh, interested me was uh, that there were no booking office clerks uh, and no ticket collectors as such. And uh, everywhere seemed very bright and airy and very clean uh, compared to the filthy, at the time, filthy London Underground. 
very, very, it was very, very impressive as well as of course being uh, very, very accessible. Uh, so Hugh, what were the other things? I mean, things like art, signage, that sort of thing, anything? Yes. I mean, what's remarkable I think about Metro is despite the political, economic and industrial relations turmoil for, within which it was created, this, this, this really high-minded vision of what it, the system would look like to the customer came through and it was delivered on. So, um, you know, Tony Ridley's team worked with uh, architectural practice, Faulkner Brown, um, on a master plan through which the stations, the new stations would all be designed around a, a core design so they would have a distinct look and feel. They got in um, Margaret Calvert and Jock Kinnear, the, the, the country's leading typographers, to, to, to give them a, a font and a visual identity, which um, we think is unsurpassed. It's as iconic as the London undergrounds to, to Northeast people, and it remains unchanged and, and central to our, our agenda. They made sure that um, standards for wheelchair users and disabled people were higher than anything that had been previously seen. So from, from the word go in 1980, every station had step-free access from street to train, and, and they still do, and that's going to get even better when we get the new fleet of trains in in the coming years. Yes, uh, as you mentioned, Mike, they invested in art and culture within the design so that there were sculptures, there, was, there were mosaics on the walls of stations to, to, to lift them. And they made sure there was that clean, bright, secure environment. So even though it was a largely staffless system, and, and that contributed to its cost effectiveness, as, as well as using tried and tested designs, because the 1500 volt DC was adapted from Germany using cars that, you know, using a model car that had come from Germany. Even though it was a staffless environment, it was one that customers would not only feel safe in, but feel they were stepping into the future. You talk to people now who remember the escalator at Haymarket, the first time they went onto it, local people saying it was the cleanest, the brightest and the longest escalator that they had ever seen. Stepping onto Metro was literally stepping into the future. Mm, absolutely. And of course, the, the Metro that opened on 1980, in 1980 was just the start. Uh, fairly soon after the went to the, went to the airport and so on, um, it was a Tyne and Weir project, uh, and yet it wasn't going to Sunderland, uh, which of course, not surprisingly, uh, caused a lot of angst amongst the politicians and the people of Sunderland who felt they were paying for it, uh, paying for the metro, but not not getting it. Then we suddenly went to Sunderland, and uh, Tobin, you want to say something about this? Yeah, and, and you're right, Mike. I mean, you know more about this project than anyone because uh, you led it. But um, quite understandably, people in Sunderland and the elected politicians who represented them did feel a degree of antipathy towards what they saw was a system serving Tyneside that didn't go to Sunderland at all, but local taxpayers um, were involved in funding. Uh, and so it was pretty important, I think, from the beginning that Metro had a plan that would extend it to bring its social and economic benefits to the Sunderland area. And that is indeed what happened um, opening in, I think, 2002. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but I did want to mention something else about that, um, as well as obviously bringing all the benefits of the Metro quite rightly to Sunderland. Um, it uh, showed a new way of 
uh, operating the system, which we're learning from even now. Uh, it was, in effect, it was the UK's first tram train project where light rail vehicles that previously had only operated on tracks dedicated to them, which is the metro system as we know it, they began to operate along the same tracks as other types of trains. And that's what we use even now to go into the heart of the centre of Sunderland uh, and beyond it. Um, and that means the metro train will be sharing the tracks with uh, an intercity high-speed train, with heavy freight trains and with heavy local passenger trains. Um, it showed it could be done. I think a, a lot of people at the time would have been sceptical that it could have been done. It required an awful lot of interface work to make sure that uh, signalling systems would work, that training of staff was appropriate for both systems. Uh, a metro driver, when in Sunderland, communicates with a network rail signal room and control room rather than with the Nexus control. Uh, lots of uh, important safety considerations to take account of. But that sets us in good stead for the future because the future of Metro will be about operating more um, interaction between heavy rail systems and the light rail Tyne and Weir Metro system. Yes, I'm, I'm conscious, conscious of time. Uh, and we know, Hugh, that uh, a lot of other uh, uh, systems around the world le learned from us. Um, I don't think we'll go into that, other than, of course, Tony Ridley, after he left, uh, I keep on saying here, after he left the Metro, went uh, off and uh, built the Hong Kong Metro. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, I think, Tobin, you've got a very famous photograph of the Hong Kong Metro train uh, uh, being uh, stationed in, in, in our depot, which is which is excellent. Could we, so you, you're talking about going on to the future. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the future? Where, where where do you think we're going to go uh, in 10 years time? Where do you predict we're going to be, Tobin? Yeah, well, I've mentioned already a, a project that we're doing to dual the track in South Tyneside, hugely important project. Since the Metro's construction, it's had a number of pinch points um, which were born of the area it was constructed in. And that means it's quite difficult to operate a regular service, particularly when there's disruption. So dueling the track um, in South Tyneside is going to allow us to operate a much more regular service and we're going to increase the frequency. And that will start to get more people on board um, and it will support economic growth um, across the area because we'll be able to increase the frequency across the entire system. And that's going to be supported by the new train fleet, of course. Hugely exciting, the new train fleet. Um, when will the first train come in, do you expect? I'm glad you asked that. Um, the first train is going to enter passenger service at some point to be fully confirmed during 2023. But there's a series of steps leading up to that. Um, the production line is going to be created in Stadler Rails Factory in Switzerland um, in August this year. We expect testing of the trains to actually start. Um, it'll be in uh, Czech Republic, I think, um, later this year. The first train will arrive in the northeast um, at the back end of 2022. And then there'll be testing on the system in quite an intensive way um, leading up to the introduction of passenger service in 2023. So a, a really exciting time ahead. Now, the trains that you can see in the image behind me have served us very well, as you said, Mike. Uh, we love them dearly, um, but they're well past it now. 
um, performance is not great and it's a, an amazing job that the guys in the fleet team do every day to get the service out, uh, they'll be progressively retired from the point that the new fleet is introduced. And that will set us in great stead for future expansion. And you say in uh, uh, different time periods as we look ahead. In this area, there's an active project right now to bring trains back to Ashington on what we call the Northumberland Line. Now, there'll be heavy rail trains, but this is, again, another country first, really bringing back uh, local commuter trains, which we are working very closely with the project team to integrate with the Metro. So there'll be integrated ticketing, and we hope that the Northumberland Line, as well as providing passenger rail services on the national rail network, will actually be part of our local transport area. As we look further into the future, there's more lines that we will bring back to life, um, former coal lines, former passenger lines across the area. Some of them will expect to have our new metro trains operating on. And I should at this point say we've specified the new metro trains so that they're capable of carrying a battery. Um, so they'll be able to go away from overhead electrification in due course. Uh, but some of those lines will be carrying heavy rail trains, but as part of an integrated rail system, um, which I would probably compare to a, a, an S-Bahn, U-Bahn system that we see in parts of Germany. You mentioned you mentioned ticketing, Tobin. Hugh, how how will there be integrated ticketing? How will it actually work? Well, we've we've got a great starting point on integrated ticketing because most of our passengers already use smart cards to, to travel on on metro. Um, many of us pay with contactless to buy paper tickets out of machines, but we've got the pop card and we've got the a, a, the gold card on the pensioners ENCTS pass. Um, so we've got a great start to build integrated ticketing, not just with the Northumberland line, but um, the, the Northern network generally and with bus services. Um, and you'll see that from this spring. From next month, um, we will have um, integrated smart ticketing on the pop card between bus and metro in the northeast. A kind of small step back towards the integration of the early 80s. And we can build out of that. Um, for um, for the for the rail network as it as it grows and as it recovers from COVID, and I think you know that's symbolic of the fact that Metro may not always have been technologically at the cutting edge. Um, and the Sunderland Line's a good 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 example of that. But generally, we've used tried and tested technology. But our our relationship with our passengers and our offer to the customer, we've always strived to. to to really be setting standards and to really be innovating throughout our existence. Yes, I mean uh, that 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 question was not just from me; it was actually one of the one of the people who are lis listening in. But uh, but, okay. but but thank you for that. So, um, in terms of funding uh, for the for the future, uh, life is going to be very difficult. You mentioned the amount of money that you're getting from getting the support from government at the moment that won't go on forever. Uh, so in terms of revenue funding and capital funding, what's your vision? How, how do you think that's gonna, gonna pan out? David. The Metro has always had a very close relationship with the central government, um, particularly when it comes to funding. And if we go back to that historical piece, um, it is a part of the national rail network. It just happens to be one that's been carved out and given to local ownership and operation. So because of that, we have a, a very strong, very positive and productive relationship 
with the Department for Transport and the Treasury, um, who recognise the huge economic value that the system brings, uh, and therefore we've got an ongoing relationship for funding support. The current time, as I said at the very start, is, is very, very difficult. There's no question about it. Um, but that problem faces all public transport systems um, and operators in this country, buses, tram systems, and the national rail network uh, as well. So we do all need to work on finding a, a long-term sustainable solution. We do need, however, in the short to medium term, a recognition by the central government um, that will need extra funding support to keep us on our feet. Because the alternative is very unappealing and frankly, very damaging to the local community because reduction in timetables would lead to a, a spiral of decline um, that I don't think we'd find it easy to come back from. But we're confident that the government does see that. Um, and the reason uh, is very simply in a figure which we calculated a few years ago, um, that every passenger trip taken on the metro is worth £8.50 in economic benefit to uh, the local uh, economic sector. Um, and that's because people are traveling to uh, engage in employment, uh, to go to shops, to learn, and to do a number of other things, uh, as well as um, a number of people would be driving by car and contributing to the damage that congestion and pollution cause. Uh, so that's why the benefit, uh, sorry, the, the, the case is very clear um, that we need to keep on operating this system and that public support is probably likely to be a feature of it for long, for many years to come. Yeah. You mentioned uh, when we were looking at history about how uh, the, the case for Metro was built on uh, integrated uh, integration, particularly with the bus network. Uh, and of course, major interchanges at places like Heweth uh, were based, were part of the plans. Uh, and then that was, if you like, disrupted by the privatization uh, and deregulation of buses in the mid 80s, uh, which meant that really quite a lot of the, the, the plans and the estimated revenue, the estimated patronage didn't actually materialize. Do you think we'll go back to that? The greater powers that mayors are having, you're uh, not only um, uh, director general of Nexus, but you're also managing director of, uh, of uh, transport in, in the Northeast. Can you just say a little bit more about how you see perhaps the original idea for the a total network of public transport in Tyne and Weir to be resurrected. David. Yeah, you're quite right, uh, Mike, to mention integration. And uh, the system was built physically to be integrated with uh, the local bus network. Those 50 buses per hour that went over the Tyne Bridge in the early 70s had dwindled to zero when the system opened because the bus network terminated at interchange stations and the passengers transferred using seamless ticketing uh, and coordinated timetables onto the metro network, which then transported them into the city centre. Um, that vision, I think, um, was, was built into the DNA of the metro system and all of the people who've worked on it since. Uh, but you're also right that the deregulation of the bus system uh, in 1986 led to a dismantling of that coordination to a degree. Now, we do benefit in the Northeast from good bus companies uh, and a good bus service for the large part, but the integration uh, remains lacking uh, for, for the reasons that we've got different organisations and different entities running it. 
Um, the Nexus did make what I would classify as a very bold attempt to re-regulate the bus system um, through what was then called a quality contract scheme about five years ago. Uh, we put forward as a case which was scrutinised and unfortunately didn't proceed. Um, with a, the legislation at the time just wasn't fit to allow the business case to be made. Um, as we look at the modern day, um, I think that there's still a lot of people who would want much higher degree of integration between buses and the metro to make traveling around the area easy. The approach at the moment is working in close partnership with the bus companies. We're blessed with uh, good people running the bus companies uh, locally at the moment who want to increase the integration by trying to find part partnership approaches to making it smoother for passengers. Um, that said, the political changes um, in the country where there's greater devolution being offered to a variety of city regions does mean that some elected mayors, um, particularly in Greater Manchester and Merseyside, are looking at franchising schemes, bringing the buses back into the integrated network. I'm sure that's something that our local politicians would want to continue looking at um, and seeing whether there are opportunities for the future. Yes. And Hugh, about communication from now on, how do you communicate what the future is going to be? Do you think it's very important to do this uh, or is it more about communicating what's happening at the moment? Um, I think the future is very exciting for Metro. I mean, when it was built in the 70s, uh, we were solving an economic problem. Um, we've now got a big economic problem to help solve now. We need to have a green recovery from the pandemic. Um, not, we need people to come back to towns and city centres, but to come back on public transport. Um, and we're lucky in that sense, because as Tobin says, we have a new train fleet that's going to be arriving um, next year, which transforms the journey experience for customers. It will be like stepping out of a Mark I Cortina into... The, the the latest designer car from well it's switzerland in this case but you could say italy or something um and passengers know that's coming because we put passengers at the heart of the design of the new trains they they probably shaped the design and look and and the finish of the new trains like nowhere else on earth ever before we 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 had a consultation even during um this pandemic when we were hoping to to have models of the trains that people could get on board and kind of touch and feel and kind of buy into. We couldn't do that because of lockdowns. So we had, um, we had an online and virtual reality consultation. It's engaged 23,000 Metro customers. More, more people took part in the engagement that were actually traveling on our trains at the time. Um, and they're seeing the future of Metro. They're seeing these trains that are going to be superb. They will transform the experience for disabled customers because they will have sliding steps. We have 50,000 wheelchair journeys, unaccompanied wheelchair journeys on the system every year. We're immensely proud of that. And we have designed a train that starts with the needs of disabled people, because if you design a good train for that meets the needs of disabled people, you design a better train for everybody. So people can see the future. It's not very far away. And I think that's kept Metro in people's minds. So as those trains arrive, as we deliver the Metro flow project and the increase in um, frequency across the system, we're in a good place to win back passengers. And Tobin, just a question about other rail links. Are there plans to, I mean, I remember people talking for years when I was there about the Leamside line. 
do you see other lines, and this is related to a question I've been asked, uh, do you see other lines being used in the medium term? Rail Very lines much. converted? Uh, yeah, we, we've got a, a reasonably long-standing strategy that was agreed to by um, the uh, Political Transport Committee a few years ago, which is looking at expansion using old railway lines. Now, the North East has one great asset, and that is lots and lots of old railway alignments for carrying coal or steel, uh, sometimes passenger services, and a lot of these are lying unused, uh, quite often protected by planning. Uh, I think the biggest opportunity of all is, as you've rightly said, is the Leamside line. Uh, the Leamside line runs parallel to the A19 uh, or to the East Coast Main Line, if you like, and it runs through the heart of Washington, a big, big town for the UK without any rail connection. Um, and it also gives us an opportunity to bring the metro to Sunderland. Uh, so the first thing that we're looking at is a, a, a loop service that would continue through South Hilton, which is the existing terminus of the metro in Sunderland, uh, and would continue through the Penshaw area, for those who know that, join the Leamside line as it then loops up through Washington and takes you into South Tyneside. But the Leamside line can do a vast amount more than that. It can bring local passenger services to the heart of some of the Durham communities who've been bereft of train services for decades. Um, places like Fence Houses, um, and uh, Tursdale, Bournemouth. Uh, these places can be reconnected to the rail network with uh, good passenger links that can take them not just into Tyneside and Sunderland, but also into uh, Teesside. But then finally, here is the, the really um, exciting part of the Leamside line. The East Coast Main Line, as we know it today, in the Northeast is hugely congested. It doesn't have enough space for the train services that are planned for May 2022 let alone when we're part of the high-speed networks brought about by HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail. We need more space on that, on that line. The Leamside line can actually offer an outlet where slow-moving trains can be diverted along the Leamside line, um, freeing up the East Coast Main Line as we know it today for those fast passenger services which connect us to further afield. So hugely exciting opportunities and there are plenty more like it in the northeast. Excellent, excellent. Um, one of the questions is it related, to, uh, which I'm going to send to you, um, Hugh, is about walking and cycling. Uh, one thing that the pandemic has done is move lots of people to walk more and cycle more. How do you see the system integrating with walkers and cyclists? Um, well, our new, our new fleet of trains will be much better for cyclists. Um, we, we've been trialing the um, allowing bikes onto trains. Unfolding bikes weren't allowed for a long time in Metro's history. We've done that in the last three or four years because we wanted to learn ready for the new fleet. The new fleet will keep the four wheelchair spaces per train that we have at the moment. That, as I say, is crucial because of those 50,000 journeys by wheelchair users now, but it will introduce two, um, uh, two multi-use spaces that cyclists, people with children's buggies, luggage can use as well on the trains. Um, so there'll be much more scope for cyclists to, to use Metro. That's alongside more investment in smart and secure cycle lockers at stations. You'll remember in your day, you introduced lockers with keys. Now you use your pop card to open a locker, which means when you're not using it, somebody else can. 
um, and, and, and that's much more flexible. Um, we're also, of course, through the Transforming Cities programme, working with local authorities to improve cycle and walking routes, because it's not, as a region, it's not just about whether or not you can take a bike on a train, it's how comfortable you feel getting to the local station. So certainly we've talked a lot about integration, but integration with local walking routes and cycling is, is, is right there in the new fleet programme. We're, we're beginning to get near the end of time, and uh, I've had another question, which uh, uh, Tobin, uh, which is for you. Uh, what are we going to do about all these old trains that we're going to get rid of? Where, where are they going to go? Who's going to have them? Well, we've had a lot of suggestions in the past, uh, it must be said. Um, let's not forget that this train fleet, sadly, is way past its design life and can't, we don't think, provide any meaningful operational use much as we would like it to be otherwise. Um, so for the large part, they will be withdrawn and uh, some of them, I'm afraid, will end up in scrap. But we have been talking to uh, various heritage centres for railway memorabilia, um, and we have a number of expressions of interest that we'll be following up. Uh, we, we're, we're very confident that at least one or two of these trains will be preserved for the future, um, but more details on that, I think, to be confirmed when we have it. Okay, is there anything, Hugh, you want to say as a sort of closing remarks? Anything we haven't covered that you'd like to uh, to mention? I, I don't think we've talked much about things like social media. No, I mean, I mean, I, I think the key points for me is is that Metro is a story of devolution. It's a story of of investing and building in a, a system in the in the height of a economic and political turmoil and it's a system that's always had high ambitions about the offer that it would make to customers and all that was true to make it happen in the 1970s and I think we learn from that and continue to build on that now as we invest for the future. Absolutely uh, and Tobin last words from you. I'll close where I started by paying tribute to all of the fantastic people who keep this system operating on a day-to-day -day basis uh, our current marketing tagline is part of everyday life uh, because it is so fundamental to the fabric of society in northeast England. I want to pay tribute as well to the elected politicians who we work with who continually provide the challenge but also the political support for what we do and we wouldn't be able to do it in the local environment without them. So uh, yeah it's thank you to everybody who on an ongoing basis comes together, makes this system deliver for the communities and the economy in the northeast. Well, thanks, Tobin. That's excellent. And I, um, from my point of view, it's lovely to hear uh, that the metro is in great hands. Uh, it's had an amazing history, unique type of operation, and it's obviously got a really exciting future. Back to you, Jonathan, to close up for the Urban Transport Group. Uh, thanks, Mike, and thanks to Tobin and you for what was uh, fascinating and uplifting. Uh, discussion. It seems to me that there's a danger the China Way Metro sometimes gets taken for granted or seen as a historical one-off when really we should see it as a live inspiration for what can be emulated for urban public transport everywhere. Not that every city should have something identical to the Metro, but the achieved aspiration for fully integrated public transport for nothing but the best, for a level of ambition for what cities can be and do, the sheer boldness of it, that should resonate down the years to where we find ourselves now as we seek a green and just recovery from the pandemic. 
which brings us on to our next event, which I hope you'll be able to join us for, Urban Transport Next 04, which will be on March 25th at 1pm. It's going to be on after the pandemic, what does the future hold for urban public transport? Our guests will be Mohamed Baganzi, the Secretary General of UITP, which is a global public transport body, the Chair of UTG, Laura Schoaf, the Managing Director of Transport for West Midlands, and the event will be chaired by Philip Road, the Director of LSE Cities. So what a lineup that is. Hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, thanks again to our panel, to everyone who took part live or was listening back on the podcast or watching on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye.